This is one of those passages of scripture that Jim reminded me this morning. He came up and grabbed me and he said, I don't know how you're going to do it this morning. I've been reading this all week and, and I don't know how you're, going to, how you're going to teach this. And so this is one of those passages that we can skim over, but it, it asks us deep questions. It asks us real questions. And so this is going to be one of those times when we need to evaluate and examine ourselves spiritually. And it's going to give us also a lot of insight into the Christian life. Why are we reading the examples of these saints who went before us? What can we learn from them? And so we're going to get some of that in the text. But before we get into our text, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I don't think I've ever done. But I'm going to ask you to pray for me this week. Because coming up next week is the passage of Abraham and Isaac. And it is one of those passages that is the most visceral, gut-wrenching, or even offensive, that God would ask a man to put his son on an altar and sacrifice him. And this is one of those passages that the world loves to look at and criticize Christianity. What kind of God is that? But I want us to see that it is a powerful expression of the gospel. And it is so beautiful what God does through that, providing the lamb and pointing us to Christ. And so just to encourage us in that and to whoever may hear it, uh, and that it's just one of those stories that should point us to Christ and help us to celebrate what we have in him and what he did on our behalf. So just pray for me this week. And then before we get into our text, I want to talk about this universal desire among mankind, this desire for belonging. This desire to feel at home, this desire to feel wanted, this desire to feel known. Whether we admit it or not, we all want that cheers feeling, right? Where everyone knows your name. Everyone knows you. When you walk in, they know what to expect. They know how to speak to you. They know where you struggle. They know where you're excited. And we look for belonging in all kinds of different places, but the problem and the difficulty with trying to find belonging is that it's, it's fleeting. And we normally do that in two different ways. We look for belonging among people and in places. The same two things that were promised to Abraham. Land and seed. But for us, the people in our lives and the places that we live, they're always changing. The promises of God are not. And if we look for belonging in the things of this world and the people that are around us, if we find our identity in people, if we find our identity in the places that we live, we're going to always struggle for that sense of belonging. Maybe you've never thought about this, but think back. Remember when you were a child, right? Uh, When you grew up in a certain neighborhood, your friends were the kids who lived nearby you. And you assume that the, the kids that you played with when you were a child, you were always going to be friends with. It's always going to be like this. We're going to be friends forever. We know how long that lasts. Not very long. And pretty soon, you discover girls, you discover boys. All that changes. Your friends are out the window, and you look for belonging in different places. And you get to high school, and everything changes again. You either feel like you belong, and they're the best years of your life, and you peaked. Sorry. Or you feel awkward, and you feel like, I don't really belong here. Where, am I, where do I fit in? I'm awkward in my own skin. Again, belonging doesn't really satisfy us in high school. When you get to college, of course, you find yourself in college and it all makes sense. And uh, you think you've got the world figured out. And you think that I've got this group of friends that I belong with. But uh, most of us recognize that those people you may never see again. You may never talk to again. That belonging that you found in that period of your life 
doesn't last very long. Well, what about when we get older? What about our jobs? We create these workplace friendships, let's be honest, the people that we are friends with in our jobs, we probably would not hang out on a normal basis if we didn't work next to them. And we find a belonging around people who we're comfortable with. But then people leave, or you change jobs. Or what about when you, when you move? You have to meet new neighbors, you have to get used to new things, you have to get used to new streets, you have to get re- used to new traffic patterns and restaurants, and you, you get upset from your, your normal process and you look for belonging again. Where do I fit? Where is my home? And where does it end? Uh, where are we looking for belonging? And if we're doing it according to our flesh, it's normally people or places. And part of the reason I love doing the studies the way that we do, where we come together and we open scripture and everyone is doing their own studying and we get to dig into passages. We, we spent two hours on seven verses. And one of the things that had never really sunk into me was what Paul says about belonging in the beginning of Romans. We are called to belong to Christ. And our belonging is to be found in him. And as Deshaun said, that Romans is so, uh, so just permeated with Christ. Christ is all sufficient and it's all centered on Christ. And our belonging is to be found in him. The writer of Hebrews talks about that. Because we're going to look at all these saints throughout history who did not find their belonging among the people and the places of this world. So let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this. So we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 13 through 16, and then we're going to walk back through them. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for a city. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your grace will quiet our hearts will quiet our minds, to get us to contemplate the deeper things of you. Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our belonging? Lord, help us to be sobered by the example of those who came before us, who are such an example of faith, not because of their greatness, but because of your greatness and your faithfulness in all things. Lord, I just pray that this passage help us to fix our eyes on you and the promises that are guaranteed in you and the home that you are preparing for us. That we are to be a people called after your name, a people for your possession. We be a people set apart from this world. Because we are yours. We are bought by the blood of your son. We are sanctified to your glory. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So where we find ourselves now, this is kind of one of those passages that we don't really understand. Where does this come from? We get all these familiar stories. We get Abel. We get Noah. Enoch's not too familiar, but he's, he's there. We get Abraham. We get Sarah. And now there's this interlude. 
This is kind of a little aside to let us know that the faith that we're talking about, we're going to describe it for a moment. And this applies to those before this passage and those after this passage. What is the nature of the faith of those who believe? So we begin in verse 13. These all died in faith. Now the writer of Hebrews breaks up the formula. Each section begins with by faith, by faith, by faith. But here, these all died in faith. It's an amazing testimony to say that you've died in faith. That until the day that you die, you live in faith. Still faithful to their death. This is not something they grew out of. This is not something that wore off. They were faithful as they walked. They were faithful as they died. And if you live by faith, truly, you will die in faith. But how did they live in faith? How do we live in faith? How do we end well? We follow them as an example. And the first thing that's important for us to recognize is it is difficult, it is impossible to live by faith if you don't know the one who you have faith in. There was an intimacy, there was a trust, there was a recognition of the authority and the promises and the sovereignty of God. You must know the character and the promises of the one that you have faith in. They considered and trusted in the word of God. How many times do you think Abraham and Sarah had to remind themselves in the wilderness? Remember what God promised year after year, decade after decade, being faithful with only the audible word of God to go by. How do we live by faith? It's not very different for us. We trust in the word of God. We trust in his promises to us. And we have God's word on full display, fully unveiled. From beginning to end, we know what God's plan is for his people. Abraham lived for decades on a few sentences. How should we live on 66 books? Scripture should be so life-giving and so guiding in our lives that it makes it easy to live by faith. God has encouraged us by his very word, breathed out by his very spirit. The word became flesh, came to dwell among us. And his witness guides us toward our heavenly home. And we're going to see that this morning. We're not going through Psalm 119 by accident. Psalm 119 is this great declaration, letter after letter in the Hebrew alphabet, declaring, I will meditate on your law day and night. I will find my delight in your statutes. I will put your precepts in my heart. I will find your hope in them. But many times we approach God's word as either some manual, or can I find a verse to fit this part of my life? Or we don't open it at all. Cherie reminded me of a, a Jen Wilkin, one of her favorite teachers, has this great analogy that most people um, approach God's word like a debit account. All right, uh, I'm just going to swipe my card and I'm going to pull out these, this little bit for what I need. I'm only going to go to it when I need it. When in fact, we should treat it like a savings account. Where we are putting daily deposits, regular deposits of our time and our desires into God's word. So it grows with interest. And it accumulates an inheritance for us that will provide for us and guide us 
through our entire life so that we live by faith and we die by faith according to the word of God because it is life. It is breath to our very being. Turn with me a couple books to your right to first or to second Peter. Peter has this beautiful picture of what a faithful life lived out looks like and what the result of a faithful life lived out looks like. Second Peter starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I mean, if, if, if you don't stop and your heart doesn't drop out of your chest in that, God has called us to his glory and his excellence. His divine power has granted that. Verse 4, by which he has granted us to his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Should also blow our minds that we weren't just called to be better humans, but we're to partake in the divine nature. The things that only God knew through all eternity, but through Christ we get to partake in. Having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire, these two things are at odds with each other. We have to be called out of this world into these divine excellencies before we can truly appreciate them. Verse 5. This is what it means for us practically. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Adding to our faith, virtue, and knowledge, and godliness, and love. We do that by being rooted and saturated in God's word. Keep reading. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Rest in those words. By faith you are saved and you will never fail in that faith. So grow in it. Be encouraged in it. Verse 11. For in this way there will, will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through faith we grow. We embrace this divine nature that we partake in. And we can rest that we will never fail in it. That is what we're going to look at this morning, persevering faith. What does it mean to persevere? And this is something that the writer of Hebrews talks a lot about. The writer of Hebrews is very concerned with apostasy. Apostasy does not mean someone who loses their salvation, but someone who appears Christian, who walks the Christian walk and talks the Christian talk, but inside they are dead and they fall away. The writer of Hebrews reminds us to watch yourself. Make sure you are not one of them. Stir your hearts and your affections to the things of God. Look to Christ who fulfilled all things. The perseverance of the saints is one of the great gifts and joys of the Christian life. 
Because Jesus said, if you are mine, I know you. I bought you. and No one can snatch you out of my hand. So when you recognize that the Son of God, who died for your sins and rose again, is holding you, and there is nothing you can do to shake his grasp, you can persevere. Your faith is in his hands, not yours. How do you know if you have true faith? Jesus tells us, if you persevere to the end. Christian life is not about coasting and getting it all right on day one. It's about walking by faith, stumbling a little bit. But in faith, rooted in the knowledge of God, rejoicing in the excellencies that we have in Christ, you will never fail. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to get, that they died in faith. That their faith guided them and carried them through their entire life. And although they were in the promised land with the promised seed, they didn't receive the full benefit of that promise. These all died not having received the things promised. So the promised land and the promised seed, Canaan, and the promised son, Isaac, didn't bring everything to fruition. So it must have been something more. There must have been a spiritual reality underneath these temporal realities. There was a heavenly reality that was to be revealed one day. And as Christians, we still live in that balance. Because the promises of God are as sure to us as it were it was to them. When Christ said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. Nothing else we can add, nothing that needs to be done on our behalf. It has been done and been decided before the foundation of the earth. But yet here we are. This world is broken. There's sin. I fail. You fail. I struggle in my faith. You struggle in your faith. And for the believer, there's this tension throughout our entire lives of the already, not yet. You've heard me talk about this. The already, knowing that our promises in Christ are true today. That the same God who promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joshua, Moses, promised to us land and an offspring forever. And that is already true because God has declared it. There's nothing on this world that can change that. But yet it is not yet because here we are. You're broken, I'm broken. And what do we do in the not yet? The already is easy. Okay, all right, that's done, but what do I do today? How does this affect my life tomorrow? How do I wake up tomorrow knowing that my uncle might not make it? How do I wake up tomorrow not knowing how a surgery is going to go? How do I wake up tomorrow knowing, if, is, is my baby going to be okay? How do I live in faith today? And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know where their, their vision was. Because if our vision is only on today, we're going to be wrecked with our own guilt in our own pain, in our own worry, and be burdened by our own fragile nature. This picture of these promises that are already but not yet, and any analogy is going to fail in comparison. So I want you to think about an inheritance. You know, your grandmother dies and she leaves you a sum of money and you may get payouts here and there, but you don't rec- it, is, it is yours. It is in your name. No one else can take it, but you don't receive it in full until the promised time. And our inheritance is, is, is like that. 
And we're going to look at Jesus' words about those particular things a little bit later. But what he stored up for us. Because unlike your grandmother's inheritance, our Savior came to earth. To walk a sinless life. To go to the cross. To purchase our sins. And bring our account back to even. Because we were in the negative. Way in the negative. But he also added to our account. Co-heirs with him. The inheritance that he shared with the Father. The inheritance that only he deserved. He gave to those whose faith is in him. He secured our inheritance in him. And it is so much easier to rest in that than to rest in only what I can see. Because we keep going back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. If we could see it, it wouldn't need faith. We, it wouldn't be faith. We wouldn't need to trust in God. But can we trust in God's promises? Do we trust in what the Bible says that Christ came to do for us? Can we live by that? We don't realize how blessed we are. We don't realize how good we are. Um, I love what John Calvin gets at here, and this quote's going to be up on the screen. There is expressed here a difference between us and the fathers. Though, though God gave to the fathers only a taste of that grace which is largely poured, largely poured on us, though he showed to them at a distance only an obscure representation of Christ, who is now set forth to us clearly before our eyes, Yet they were satisfied and never fell away from their faith. How much greater reason then have we at this day to persevere? Think about that. They were just looking forward to the promises of God. We've seen the promises of God unveiled in their full splendor in God's word. They didn't fall away. What reason do we have to fall away? We should be without excuse. That's not the reality. How often do we doubt? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the faith that it took to not have scripture? They didn't, Abraham didn't even have the Pentateuch. The, he, was, he was living the Pentateuch. He just had the verbal word of God. We have the full counsel of, of God at our fingertips. And how often do we use it? How often do we apply it to our lives? We have all the knowledge of Christ right here. God has revealed it to us and given it to us. Faith gives us this eternal perspective. Abraham only had what was right in front of him, but he had an eternal perspective. The time no longer holds sway over us. Our God is outside of time. His decrees are outside of time. And nothing that happens in this life can change that. And Abraham had this vision, this spirit vision of something that was to come. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. We've gone over this before, uh, but this verse keeps coming to mind. John 8, 56. Jesus is responding to these Pharisees who are gnashing their teeth at him. And what does he say? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You think about that for a moment. Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it. Abraham saw Christ. 
with a vision that is not the naked eye. It is a vision that sees things not seen, convicted of them. And what did he do? He rejoiced. He was glad. Abraham celebrated the day that Christ would come. Abraham lived in the desert looking forward to Christ. I love what Arthur Pink says about this. He says, faith not only discerns the value of spiritual things and is fully persuaded of their reality, but also loves them. We don't just know these things. We're not just convinced of them, but we love them. We are glad. We rejoice in what we have in Christ. We rejoice in what Scripture reveals to us, even though we're strangers and exiles. Our citizenship is not on earth. Paul tells us that in Philippians 3.20. We are strangers here. We are exiles. In a sense, we don't belong. If you've been a follower of Christ, you, you realize there's, there's a disconnect between the world and what Scripture says. The world and what our heart desires. The Spirit has put within us this desire for the things of God and the world is fighting against it all the time. And there's this tension Already, the not yet. How do we live in this dual citizenship of being citizens of heaven, but we actually live here? We actually walk here. My body is here. I pay taxes here. Which I didn't, but I vote here. How does that work? This is not new to us. Uh, there's one of the earliest letters we, we have from, from the church, this second century letter. We don't have the author but it was written to a believer, uh, Diognetus, talking about Christians. What is it like to live as a Christian in the Roman Empire? This will be up on the screen. They inhibit their own, they inhabit their own country. But as sojourners, they take part in all things as citizens and endure all things as aliens. You see that? We're actually living here. We're in this country, but it's as a sojourner. It's as a pilgrim. We're passing through. They take part in all things as citizens. We're active in where we live. And they endure all things as aliens. Every foreign country is theirs. And every country is foreign. That is the tension of the believer. And it's been the same for 2,000 years. How do I live here? Live as a citizen. In light of being a citizen in heaven. So I have a question for you. When you... If you watch the news, how do you watch the news? This is kind of a good barometer, right? You turn on the news and you see all of the chaos, the violence, and the, the just absurdity that goes on in our culture. How do you watch the news? Do you watch the news as a foreigner? Someone who's looking like these people who live here are crazy. I'm glad my citizenship is not here. Or do you fret and worry about everything that goes on in the news? Are you shocked when pagans do what pagans do? Are you shocked that Romans look like Rome? Are you shocked that sin is on full display and it's celebrated? Why shouldn't it be? Do you ever think about the things that you watch on the news? How many of them affect your heavenly home? How many of them affect your eternity? So I'm asked often, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, do you see what happened with the NFL? Do you see what they're doing over there? Do you see what happened over here? Do you see what this person's doing? Did you see this legislation? What do you think about this? 
depending on who I'm talking to, if we have a good relationship, I'll tell them I don't care. Um, and people will be, what do you mean you don't care? Sometimes I'll be a little softer than that, but you guys know me. Soft isn't really my thing. Um, but I don't, I don't care. I really don't. Now, should we know what's going on around us? Yeah, to a certain extent. But is that going to change my heavenly reality? Is that going to change the gospel? Does that have an effect on my soul? 99 times out of 100, no. And that other one, I'm probably prideful and thinking too much of myself. Stuff doesn't matter. We, we're so obsessed with this 24-hour news cycle. It is a cancer. Because Christians sit on the edge of their seat and watching what this one's going to do and what this one's going to do. Who cares? Our God is sovereign over all things. His kingdom is not here yet. Our citizenship is not here. Strangers and exiles. For people who speak thus, speak like that, out loud. This is not my home. I don't belong here. People who speak thus. I make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Their desire is not for the things of this world. The word homeland, it's Greek word patrida, which is basically fatherland, from where we get patriot, where we get patriotism. And they're seeking a place where they can be a patriot, where they can find their home. Now, with all that being said, let me just, you need to hear me say this too, that we can all admit that we are thankful and we should be that we are in a free nation, that we can worship God freely, that we have the freedoms that we have, and we should thank God for all the things that we have. But are we more connected to our patriotism here than our actual home? Maybe it's not your patriotism. Maybe it's your connection to the home that you were born in. Maybe it's a connection to the color of your skin, your, your, your gender, your, your locale, where you live. Anywhere you find belonging, where you feel more like you belong than with Christ forever, it's a problem. That's what our culture does all the time. These are real questions we need to ask because the culture has an answer for it. The culture tells you, find your identity in your color. Find your identity in your gender. Find your identity in where you live. That's blasphemous. Our identity is in Christ. Like Paul said, we were called to be saints, to belong to Christ Jesus. Could any identity be greater than that? And the sad thing is, this happens in churches far too often. It looks different in different churches. But they have identities to a lot of things. They put a lot of things above Christ. They're all idols. And in our lives, we can look at things where, that we look to above Christ, and we need to repent of those. Because if it's not Christ, if it's not eternal, it is fleeting. Instead of being patriots, we should be more like expatriates. You've heard the term expat. It's, it's someone who is living away from their fatherland. They are in a place, they're actually living there, but their home is somewhere else. That is an appropriate description of the believer. And like we saw a couple of weeks with that quote from, from C.S. Lewis, he's, he, he's homesick. He's homesick for a land that 
He was created for a different place. We were created for a different place. These saints who walked in the wilderness, who stood up to giants, who brought down walls, called down plagues upon pagans, were made for a different place. They have a different home. And they were looking forward. Verse 15. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. We're not talking about going back to Ur. We're not looking back to Canaan. We're not looking back to Egypt. He was always looking forward to the city of God, to a promised land. Are you able to do that? Are you able to look forward to what is promised to you in Christ? Or are you like me, who sometimes struggles and like, man, it was easier before I was a Christian. It was easier when I just lived for myself. It was easier when my whole world revolved around me. I didn't have to care about other people. I didn't have to submit to a God. You're able to look forward to the promises, not to the land that you came from, but to the land that you're called to. And the problem has always been to get people to see out of the right now. That was Jesus' biggest struggle was he's giving them the kingdom of God, eternal truths. And they were saying, well, what about marriage? Or what about this? Or what about that? He said, you foolish people. How often does seed get thrown on rocky soil? That hears this message, and it sounds great, until the world chokes it. Until the world strangles it because it has no root. We are to be people who are deeply rooted in the same faith and the same promises that our forefathers were because as it is verse 16 they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city notice anything different here something changes in verse 16 and if you read through this with an eye for detail you see that the tense has changed The first three verses are past tense. He's talking about things that happen. Verse 16 is present tense. Read this again. But as it is, right now, they desire currently a better country. This is something they're still looking forward to. The way that we look forward, Abraham is still looking forward. He's in the bosom of the Lord. Waiting for all things to come to their consummation, just like we are still. It's amazing that this changes to a present tense as it is. They desire right now the way the way we desire right now. We share in that with them. They are looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. They realize that their resting place, their calling was not to this earth. Neither should we look to anything on this earth as our functional promised land. What is promised to us is greater than what we can ever imagine. Before we move down to Florida, I grew up in upstate New York, and if anyone's been there, I know a couple of you have, um, or anywhere up north, we're in the Bible Belt or around the Bible Belt, whatever. Uh, We grew up in the Rust Belt. What that means is that there is so much snow and so much salt on, on the road to break down this ice and snow that the bottom of cars are rusted out. It's how you know a car is from up north because it's rusted out on the bottom. 
and it is so cold and you have snow for, you see snow eight, maybe nine months of the year sometimes. No joke. There will be snow either falling or, or melting for nine months out of the year many times. And you look at Florida, Florida is the promised land. You think, all right, I'm going to go to the beach every day. I'm going to learn to surf. and I'm going to do all these things. And you get here and you realize it's better, trust me. Um, but it's not the promised land. This time of year is nice. If you guys know me, like I, I don't want to go inside. I just want to be outside. I just rejoice in the weather that we have. But the summer feels like Satan's armpit sometimes. <laughs> it's just like, I, I hate it. I want to leave and not come back till like October. But when you look to something here as your functional promised land, it might deliver for a moment. But it's not going to deliver for long. And this is beautiful. I love verse 16. Because... 13 is describing their faith, and 14, 15, and 16 is kind of unpacking that a little bit. It's explaining verse 13, and verse verse 16 sums it all up. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, and this is beautiful. Therefore, if you're listening to John Piper, he will tell you, what is the therefore, therefore? Because of their faith, because of their seeking the things of God, therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God. That is an amazing statement. Is throughout all of Scripture, the biggest blessing, the greatest, the greatest joy that anyone can ever have placed on themselves is that God is not ashamed to be called your God. Because the call of God's people is that I am taking a people who are not my people. And I will make them my people, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It means you are his possession. This is beautiful. This is amazing. This is how perseverance happens. Not on your own strength, but because he is your God. He is your strength. He is your power, your redeemer, your rock, your security. He be the one who guides you as you persevere. And it is just amazing. And that God, who you trusted in for all of your provision, is not ashamed to be called your God. And, and what more? For he has prepared for them a city. Don't take my word for it. Let's, let's look at Jesus' words here. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verse 34. Jesus is talking about the final judgment. When he comes again, he's talking about separating the sheep from the goats. And what does he say? 2534. Then the king will say to those on his right, that is the sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my father, the God who considers himself your God, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus said that it is better that I go. Holy Spirit comes. They didn't want to lose Jesus. They didn't want to lose the flesh and blood. Remember the, the disciples? They didn't want to lose the flesh and blood Jesus that they could touch, that they could see. No, don't go. He said, it's better that I go. Because I'm preparing. I've prepared. Past tense. It is completed. A place for you. One of our most commonly used verses. Turn to John 14 with me. We love John 14, 6. Should all be able to repeat that. 
When anyone comes to you with a different gospel, with a different God, with a different Jesus, you quote to them John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We love that. But as I always tell you, you need to read it in its context. Because it is absolutely true. But where is he saying it and why is he saying it? Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. We also love that. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way uh, to where I am going. These are the promises of Christ. You hear him say this. I will. I will. I will. The city is being prepared by Christ. It is his word. And if we can't trust in it, we can't trust him. But of course, Thomas comes in here and Thomas needs some clarification, right? Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is the context which Jesus is saying this. Catch this here. Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to that kingdom. That city that Abraham looked forward to, that Sarah looked forward to, that Joshua looked forward to, Jesus is the way. The only way, the truth, and the life. No other way. Trust in him. Repent. Turn from the world. Give up your citizenship here for a citizenship in heaven. Trust and believe in me. I am the way. And it's so because I told you. I am says so. I'm going to close with this um, another quote from John Calvin. Kind of tough words, but he's just repackaging what Jesus has already said to us. This is what he says. We are, we are then to conclude that there is no place for us among God's children unless we renounce the world. And there, will be, and there will be for us no inheritance in heaven unless we become pilgrims on earth. You don't like that because it comes from someone else? What did Jesus say? If you don't hate your mother and your sister and your brother because of, of me, if you don't take up your, your, your cross, if you don't shame everything that this world holds dear for the sake of me, you don't deserve me. Well, and then what about we have, the, we have no inheritance in heaven unless we become, uh, excuse me, unless we become pilgrims on earth. What else did Jesus say? Foxes and hens if they're home. Me? I don't have a place to lay my head. I'm a pilgrim here. I'm putting no stock in this world. And I want you to do the same. That is a high call for us. Jesus has also promised the city for us. He's promised a room in his father's house. It is more glorious than anything you can decorate and make with your own hands. So what do we walk away with this morning? The two things promised to Abraham, land and seed, are still what we desire. And we look for our belonging in those things, but they're both fulfilled perfectly in Christ and can be found nowhere else. The promised land, one day he will make all things new, new heavens and new earth. The promised offspring, us, with all of the saints, those who trust and believe in him will live with him forever in this city. And we are to anticipate and look to that city more eagerly because it's close to us. It's closer than what Abraham has. It's right here. It's even described in Revelation 21 and 22. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. But while we're here, we live as strangers and exiles in this dual citizenship. 
pilgrims. And we can persevere in faith because God is our God. He is not ashamed to be our God. He is preparing a place for us. And if it wasn't so, he wouldn't have said it. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to give a moment to let that soak into our hearts. The splendor and glory that you have called us to. That we would even get a glimpse of your majesty. That from before the foundation of the earth, you knew our names. You knew the hairs on our head. You knew the days of our lives. You loved us anyway. Help us to continue in faith, to live by faith, to die in faith, to persevere. Because our belonging is with you. Our home is with you. Our citizenship is in your kingdom. Let this be an encouragement to every believer in here. And let this be a challenge in here to everyone who does not know you. That there is no belonging outside of Christ. There is no homeland in this world. It is all passing away. It will die and be remade new, perfect again. Lord, as we approach your table this morning, let us do it in celebration. This family feast celebrating the promises and the excellencies that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.